0: Why would Donald Trump need top-secret nuclear documents at his Florida Country Club? The lead starts right now. The Washington Post reports, FBI agents found nuclear documents at Mar-a-Lago, material so secret only a tight circle knew they even existed. So why were those documents there? And how secure might they have been from any prying eyes? Plus, Former Russian spies tell all rare insight into the inner workings of the FSB from operatives who defected from the Kremlin secretive security agency. Plus, a veteran Las Vegas investigative reporter found stabbed to death outside his home. The move today that may put police one step closer to his killer. <clears throat> Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our politics lead in striking new details about what exactly Donald Trump took to Mar-a-Lago. One of the documents that FBI agents recovered during their search of the Florida resort described a foreign government's nuclear capabilities. That's according to The Washington Post, which goes on to say, quote, Some of the seized documents detail top-secret U.S. operations so closely guarded that many senior national security officials are kept in the dark About them, unquote. Donald Trump's lawyers, once again trying to deflect from any serious national security implications here, instead decrying what they describe as leaks about the investigation, which one might observe is a curious time to suddenly express concern with the security of sensitive information. But this does further explain why Justice Department officials and U.S. intelligence agencies were apparently so worried about this classified material that was improperly removed and taken to the Trump Country Club in West Palm Beach. CNN Sarah Murray starts off our coverage today with the new push from lawmakers in both parties to learn more about what else the FBI seized from Mar-a-Lago.
1: New revelations about the sensitivity of the documents seized from Mar-a-Lago.
0: It's very, very troubling that this type of
2: information would be would be there or anywhere for that matter.
1: A document describing a foreign government's nuclear capabilities was among those recovered from former President Donald Trump's Florida resort, sources tell The Washington Post.
3: When I went to CIA, I didn't have access to them because there is a strict need to know.
1: The Justice Department has said in court filings that some of the documents previously recovered from Mar-a-Lago were marked special access program, significantly limiting who should be allowed to view the information. All of this underscoring the potential security risks of stockpiling highly sensitive materials.
3: It just really, I think, raises serious, serious questions about whether or not uh, anybody saw them who shouldn't have and whether or not our national security and maybe the national security of our allies has been compromised.
1: In a statement, a spokesman for Trump condemned never ending leaks and lies. Trump allies still up in arms over the August search.
4: This whole thing is corrupt as hell.
1: The Justice Department now blocked from reviewing those materials after a judge granted Trump's request for a special master, though the intel community's damage assessment continues. Despite a sharp criticism of Trump's document hoarding, former Attorney General Bill Barr saying he doesn't want to see Trump indicted.
5: What will that do to the country? What kind of precedent will that set?
1: As bipartisan pressure builds...
6: It's an outrage.
1: Among lawmakers demanding more details about what was recovered from Mar-a-Lago. GOP Senator John Kennedy saying...
7: I'm not saying I'm not concerned about the whole situation, I'm just saying I don't have the facts.
1: As Democratic Senator Ron Wyden, a member of the Intelligence Committee, calls for a briefing as soon as possible.
0: I definitely want to know what's what's in there. Given the fact
7: that you have a number of agencies looking at, at these issues,
0: the briefing probably needs to be conducted by more than one agency.
1: Now, Senator Mark Warner, who is the chair of Senate Intel, told our colleague Manu Raju that he is hoping to get a briefing from the intelligence community on the review of these sensitive documents soon, but that it is not likely to happen before the House returns to Washington next week. Jake.
0: All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss Donald Ayer. He's the former deputy attorney general under President George H.W. Bush and former CIA chief of Russia operations Steve Hall. Steve, let me start with you. How dangerous, theoretically, is this type of information if it were to fall into the wrong hands?
5: Yeah, this is some of the most sensitive stuff, Jake, that, that, that one can imagine. I mean, uh, you know, our primary adversaries uh, in today's world Uh, are those rogue nations that have nuclear weapons we're talking here russia china iran uh, north korea Um, and it's incredibly important obviously for us to know what they're doing with those nuclear weapons and you can rest assured that the u.s government works very hard the intelligence community works extremely hard to try to find out and get its way into these secret programs and of course they're secret because our adversaries don't want us to know about it so there's a a, just an amazing amount of time effort and money and danger undertaken to, to to get those secrets. And so if they're stored, which they were incorrectly unse- in an unsecured fashion in a country club at Mar-a-Lago, the idea that that could get back to our adversaries could reveal some incredibly damaging
0: stuff about how we got that information, Jake. It's just really, it's, it's very bad. And Don, uh, the Washington Post uh, reports, quote, some of the seized documents detail top secret U.S. operations so closely guarded that many senior national security officials are kept in the dark about them. If we're talking about information that secret, um, how can one even go about finding a special master, this third party, to review this information?
8: Well, I think that's incredibly challenging. And I think it, it, it raises, from one point of view, the problem with the order. It's a very impractical kind of an order. Um, we don't know what these documents are, and the kind of clearances somebody would have to have to review them are the kind that are not generally available to those sorts of people out in society who you could bring in. So I, I think one of the things that the department is going to have to focus on, is, and surely is focusing on, is whether they're going to go forward with this process or whether they're going to appeal it and challenge it in some respect, at least with regard to the order uh, that they are not allowed to review the documents while it goes forward. It's quite a mess this judge has created. Are you surprised they haven't appealed yet? No, I'm not. I, th- I, think, I think it's pretty clear they would wait until the response that's supposed to be filed by Friday, a joint response, um, in terms of indicating how, how to proceed. I think that's an occasion when the department can say, um, here's where we're at and here's what we're going to do. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see what they do do.
0: Steve, unlike you, I am no expert in spies or tradecraft, but it does seem fairly obvious to me that it's likely that foreign intelligence agencies would have targeted Mar-a-Lago just to see if there was any information they could grab, information exactly like this. Am Am I wrong?
5: No, not at all. I mean, to answer the question that you posed at the at the, at the very top, which is, that, is there any good reason for, you know, for Donald Trump to have this information at a, you know, at a resort? And the answer is absolutely not. It's, it's extremely dangerous. A number of things could have happened to this information. Donald Trump has been, you know, to, to be clear, we have no evidence that this has happened, but there are patterns of behavior. So Donald Trump has played fast and loose with intelligence. You remember when the the Russian foreign minister was in the Oval Office he talked about sensitive Israeli information so that might be something that he's doing again conceivably in a darker way he could be bartering with this information to try to I don't know get information if he has financial difficulties but the last point which is what you just raised there is no doubt in my mind that 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 the Chinese and the Russians and other adversarial intelligence agencies have seen Mar-a-Lago as a soft target and they've already sent people in to try to make contacts, to try to find people who have access to that information wherever it is stored at Mar-a-Lago. And I think that we're going to continue to see more of that unless somehow something is, is done. And, you know, it's, it's again, it's, it's a grave counterintelligence concern, Jake.
0: And Don, um, we should note that in a statement to The Washington Post, a, a Trump attorney criticized leaks uh, about this case, saying, quote, the court has provided a sensible path forward which does not include the selective leak of unverifiable and misleading information, there is no reason to deviate from that path if the goal is, as it should be, to find a rational solution, to document storage issues which have needlessly spiraled out of control. Now, leaving aside this document storage issues, uh, belittling of the situation... Um, does he have a point about the leaks? Uh, look, I'm, I'm a journalist. I'm always pro-leak. I want as much information out there as possible. Uh, but we've also heard Judge Cannon talk about leaking in her, in her ruling.
8: Well, I don't, I don't think we know. You know, I certainly don't, and I don't, I don't know who does have any idea what the source of any leaks is. Sure. I think giving a lecture to the Justice Department about leaking when there's no indication that they've leaked anything... Um, seems to me to be quite inappropriate. I totally take exception to the argument that the judge has laid out a sensible path. I think you've heard in the commentary many experts have made over the last few days, this judge's opinion is an abomination. This judge had no business getting into the question in the first place unless there was some substantial reason to think that equitable uh, involvement in it was needed. And there was none. Nobody said the Justice Department had done anything wrong. Um, and so I think, you know, where we now are is in an inappropriate place with the department enjoined from looking at its own documents for purposes of uh, criminal investigation. That, that's a place we should not be and we can't be for any length of time. That's the big question for the department is, are they going to take some action, i.e. appeal, in order to address that? Or are they going to go the different way and think on all the facts, They can make do, get through it in a somewhat limited time period and at least have the benefit of having the public look and see, well, here's another person. They looked at it. There was nothing going on. And now it can go forward. Mm -hmm. These are really hard calls the department has to make.
0: And Don, uh, you're a former deputy attorney general for George H.W. Bush. Uh, I want to get your reaction to something we heard from uh, Donald Trump's former attorney general, Bill Barr, earlier today. Take a listen
5: do you indict a former president? What will that do to the country? What kind of precedent will that set? Mm -hmm. Will the people really understand that this is not, you know, failing to return a library book, that this was serious? And so you have to worry about those things. And I hope that those kinds of factors will incline the administration not to indict him because I don't want to
0: see him indicted as Mm -hmm. a former president. To be clear, it's a political decision to indict him or to not indict him. What do you think?
8: Well, I, I think the, the nature of the conduct at, at issue, and I'm thinking mainly about the, the biggest thing that he did, which was trying to steal the election, which we've seen dramatized in the context of uh, the hearings uh, on the Hill and multiple steps that he was personally involved in. And now this, where it appears that Donald Trump, we have to look at all the evidence, the department has to look at all the evidence, but Donald Trump apparently was personally involved in taking documents of a top-secret nature that belong to the government, and then persistently over a period of more than a year refusing to give them back. These are really serious offenses. And the big issue um, is how can a country not take action when those sorts of things, those two critical things are being done? Anyone else would be in jail. There's no question.
0: And Steve Hall, just just to put a button on this, what if you had done this, uh, former uh, CIA station chief in Russia... Where would you be right now?
5: (laughs) Well, I would definitely be out of a job. I'd I'd probably be in jail. You know, there have been people on Twitter who have reminded me that I'm not the president of the United States. And so therefore, you know, it it doesn't really matter. But again, I get back to the to the primary question that you asked up top. Why? Where where is the innocent reason that Donald Trump needed this information? And there is no innocent reason. And it did nothing but Mm. open up the United States significant national security damage,
0: All right, Steve Hall, Donair, thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. Coming up, migrants at the border turning into a cross-country fight. The jabs between the Chicago mayor and the Texas governor as they tussle over options to solve the same problem, plus the big unveiling at the White House today and the reunion between President Biden, his former boss, and some special invited guests.
6: Thanks for letting us invite a few friends to the White House. We will try not to tear up the place. He refused to hide any of my gray hairs, (laughs) refused my request to make my ears smaller. (laughs) He also talked me out of wearing a tan suit, by the way.
0: Nothing wrong with going gray. Former President Barack Obama celebrating the return of a Washington tradition this afternoon, visiting the White House with former First Lady Michelle Obama for the unveiling of their official portraits. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, amidst the jokes and applause were some pointed comments about democracy and the peaceful transfer of power.
9: A return to tradition at the White House today.
10: Barack and Michelle, welcome home.
9: Greeted by over a minute of sustained applause... Former President Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama in the East Room for the unveiling of their official White House portraits.
11: Nothing could have prepared me better or more to become President of the United States than be at your side for eight years.
9: President Biden inviting Mr. and Mrs. Obama to the stage where they lifted blue curtains to reveal their portraits, hers by the artist Sharon Sprung.
6: I want to thank Sharon Sprung for capturing everything I love about Michelle. Her grace, her intelligence, and the fact that she's fine.
9: And his by Robert McCurdy.
6: Refused my request to make my ears smaller. (laughs) He also talked me out of wearing a tan suit, by the way.
9: The 44th president then growing serious. Presidents
6: so often get airbrushed, even take on a mythical status especially after you've gone and people forget all the stuff they didn't like about you. <laughs> Presidents and first ladies are human beings like everyone else. We have our gifts, we have our flaws.
9: The last time a sitting president invited his predecessor for a portrait unveiling was a decade ago.
8: And when you are wandering these halls as you wrestle with tough decisions, you will now be able to gaze at this portrait and ask, what would George
6: do? <laughs>
9: The longstanding tradition was put on hold when Donald Trump occupied the Oval Office and declined to host Obama, who had little interest in attending a ceremony organized by his successor. It
12: means so much to come back
9: to friends. With no direct mention of Trump today, Mrs. Obama emphasized an unmistakable message saying these traditions matter.
13: You see the people, they make their voices heard with their vote, Um, We hold an
9: inauguration to ensure a peaceful transition of power. And once our time is up, we move on. The former first lady also noting her own historic role. A
13: girl like me, she was never supposed to be up there next to Jacqueline Kennedy and Dolly Madison.
12: That is what this country is about.
13: It's not about blood or pedigree or wealth
9: and Jake, one question that has been raised to the White House in recent days is whether or not President Biden would host former President Trump once his portrait is ready. They have declined to answer that question, instead referring it to the White House Historical Association, which commissions these portraits. Jake.
0: All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House for us. Thanks so much. Coming up next, they worked undercover as spies for Russia. And now they're taking CNN inside the operation and sharing why they believe they were recruited by the Kremlin. Stay with us. Topping our world lead, Europe's biggest nuclear power plant may have to shut down following an assessment by United Nations nuclear watchdog group. A top Ukrainian official says it's clear security at the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in southeast Ukraine is, quote, deteriorating. As a top U.S. official echoes those concerns and says Russia is exposing the world to a possible, quote, nuclear catastrophe. CNN's Sam Kiley is south of the plant in Odessa, Ukraine. Sam, how reliant are Ukrainians on the power generated from this plant?
14: <clears throat> well, at its peak, uh, and that's with uh, all six reactors or when the the whole uh, power plant, the largest in Europe, is operational. That's one fifth of the electrical generating capacity for the whole of Ukraine in peacetime Of course, that's much reduced at the moment with only two reactors functional. And now we have this problem with periodic and frequent now disconnections, Jake, between uh, the main power grid. That's the incoming grid, I should stress, rather than the product. This is the incoming supply of electricity to work the cooling systems for the nuclear reactors. Now, they have been periodically severed. Uh, certainly with the reactor number six was shut down the other day. In fact, during the visit of the uh, UN inspectors, there's now concerns that the lines connecting the nuclear power station to the nearby th- traditional power station from which it drew the power for these cooling systems are now being cut, Resulted, resulting rather in the Ukrainians saying they may have to shut down all nuclear reactors there uh, and effectively mothball that power plant. But that would be a strategic disaster for them.
0: Sam, senior U.S. officials are telling CNN that Ukraine, the Ukrainian forces, are well on their way uh, to making gains in the south, targeting uh, the ambitious goal of taking back mm-hmm. most of the Kherson region by the end of the year. Do you think that's a realistic goal based on your assessment of the situation?
14: Uh, yeah, I think they've probably been watching CNN. We've been producing, uh, we've been reporting on the incremental gains now for about uh, a little over a week, Jake, in the first 24 hours, they, the Ukrainians captured or recaptured four small villages. The uh, president then of Ukraine then announced another couple of villages were captured. One shouldn't overemphasize the significance of these ret- uh, relatively small gains, though, because, as you rightly point out, the target here is Kherson. They do hope to achieve uh, capturing that, recapturing that by, uh, by Christmas uh, but that is going to be harder and harder as this whole campaign wears on, because, of course, there's a very large number of civilians concentrated in that location. But elsewhere in the country, we've also seen some in- in- incremental gains around the city of Kharkiv and elsewhere in the east, Jake. Yeah? All right, Sam Kiley in Ukraine. Thank you so much. Now, in
0: Russia, today, Russian President Vladimir Putin said Russia has, quote, lost nothing, unquote. And it's brutal, unprovoked war on Ukraine and the innocent people of Ukraine. But... Intelligence from the United States shows Russia has a severe troop shortage, and the United Kingdom estimates that they've lost more than 25,000 soldiers, the Russians. Unsurprisingly, that nation, with a knack for deception, refuses to verify those numbers, or any numbers, really. CNN's Matthew Chance investigates the Kremlin secretive security service for us now, known as the FSB, and a string of recent defections from its normally tight-lipped ranks.
15: This is where we sleep. This is how we live, Mikhail says. As the Russian political activist turned FSB informant shows us around the Dutch refugee centre where he's now seeking asylum. All I want for the future is a positive, normal life, he says, without any more of these adventures. It was as a young opposition campaigner that Mikhail, seen here at an anti-government protest in Russia, caught the attention of the Kremlin's security service, the FSB. His later work for Alexei Navalny, Russia's most prominent jailed opposition leader, must have made him particularly valuable. But he was originally targeted to be turned, he told me, with FSB threats.
16: They knew I was avoiding military service and gave me a simple choice, either to cooperate with them or go to prison for years. Basically I was threatened and as a 19-year-old student, very frightened. There are so many stories, even videos, of people being abused in prison, to even think about that is scary.
15: You were working with Navalny, there pictures of you working quite closely with him. What kind of information did you give the FSB about him? I wasn't his close friend, so I
16: couldn't give them information specifically about him. I was just working in a regional office, so they were more interested in when we were planning to hold meetings or protests, and of course, what kind of investigations we were conducting. We even cooperated on some of these investigations. Following any media outcry, the FSB would either imprison or protect a particular official.
15: But as well as keeping tabs on activists inside the country, the secretive Russian security services also appear to have been stepping up surveillance of Russians living abroad. Mikhail says the FSB pulled him out of Russia and sent him to the former Soviet Republic of Georgia to infiltrate the growing expatriate community there, escaping repressions at home alongside a network of other FSB informants already in place. informants like several. Old another young political activist who says the FSB also threatened him with prison, unless he sent detailed reports from Georgia on what Russian opposition figures there were thinking. Specifically on the Ukraine war launched in February this year, which forced many Kremlin critics into exile and the FSB's informant operations, he tells me, into overdrive. What does that say to you? about what the fears are in Moscow, about what could happen uh, in the future. What are they
7: frightened of? Uh, Russian special services are very well aware of our history. When a huge Russian immigrant community emerges abroad, where people speak freely to each other, work on projects together, help Ukrainian refugees, and basically create a mini Russia abroad, which is not under the control of FSB, they are afraid that history will repeat itself. In 1917, Lenin came to Moscow and started a Russian revolution, and they are terrified the regime will be threatened once again by war.
15: It was their opposition to the war, both Sevilod and Mikhail say, finally compelled them to turn their backs on their FSB handlers. Mikhail even appeared on Georgian television, berating the Russian regime for which he had spied.
16: I texted the FSB guys and told them that they had started this war, that it was horrible. I saw all the images online and they had turned my world upside down because I not only felt hatred towards the Russian government, but towards myself for working for them for all these years.
15: It is self-hatred and a deep sense of guilt for the lies and betrayals he says he was forced to make. Jake, Jake, these uh, testimonies are fascinating because they, they give us that insight, that glimpse into the concerns, the suspicions, and even the paranoias of the Russian security services and of their Kremlin sort of handlers and and masters as well. But it's also important that that many many Russians now, like the people we spoke to who have been working with the FSB, are so angered by the Ukraine war they're feeling compelled to speak out.
0: All right, CNN's Matthew Chance for us. Thank you so much. Coming up next. One woman's agonizing decision complicated by new laws in her state as she carried a child that doctors said would die after delivery. Stay with us. In our health lead, we are now going to take a look beyond the politics of the coast-to-coast fight over abortion rights at the consequences of the new laws passed in the wake of the Supreme Court decision striking down Roe v. Wade. As you know, many states are enacting restrictions or outright bans, while other states are trying to make abortion more easily accessible to anyone who can get across their border. CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen brings us now the story of a woman who was caught in the middle of this ugly fight, and it could have killed her.
17: Kaylee Despain got married in Marble Falls, Texas, right out of college. What were your plans for having a family? Oh, man, we wanted kids like right away. Late last year, Kaylee, a third-grade teacher, and her husband, Kate, an electrician, were thrilled to learn she was pregnant. But about four months later, at a doctor's appointment...
18: He said, this is what a normal heart looks like, but this is what your baby's heart looks like. And he was missing heart chambers.
17: Her medical records show more. The fetus had an extra set of chromosomes, a severe brain defect, a severe heart defect, and his lungs were too small. Dr. Leah Tatum is a spokesperson for the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists.
19: If the fetus develops
20: a term, that fetus will deliver, and ultimately that baby will suffocate and pass
17: away. Kaylee's doctor was clear. When he's born, he's going to suffocate to
18: death. He may live for a few minutes, he may live for an hour, but he is going to die.
17: Her doctors said they could not perform an abortion, noting in her records termination is not legal in the state of Texas. I remember her saying, you know, the course of action that
18: I would have taken with a patient a year ago would be to advise them to terminate. She said, that is the safest course of action for you. And it's the most humane course of action for him. And I just remember being so angry and shocked in that moment that I'm being told that my child's not going to survive and that I have to carry him to term no matter what.
17: And carrying him to term could have put Kaylee's life in danger. She was at high risk for several potentially deadly pregnancy complications. Blood clots, preeclampsia, and cancer because of an abnormal placenta. Texas law allows for abortion if the mother has a life-threatening physical condition that places her at risk of death or substantial impairment. But Texas lawmakers haven't spelled out exactly what that means.
21: They're extremely vague. They don't spell out exactly the situations when an abortion can be provided. I would say it's the opposite. They're extremely restrictive and broad. They threaten criminal penalties against physicians. They threaten medic-
17: to take someone's medical license away. The Dispaines were faced with a choice. Kaylee could risk her life and give birth to a baby who would die quickly or go out of state and have an abortion.
18: How could you be so cruel as to pass a law that you know will hurt women? And that you know will cause babies to be born in pain. He was going to die a painful death. So how is that humane? How is that saving anybody?
17: They decided to travel to New Mexico. Texas law prohibits insurance companies from paying for abortions in most cases. So Cade said he had to convince a relative to give them thousands of dollars.
10: My job as a husband is to protect and love my wife. If I'm not fighting to keep her here, then I failed.
17: The doctors in New Mexico recorded the baby's heartbeat. Kaylee sleeps with the giraffe at night and cries, mourning the loss of her baby and another loss too. She and Cade were born and raised in Texas. And I've never felt more
18: betrayed by a place that I was once so proud to be from.
17: They desperately want to have another baby, but there's a high likelihood that something will go wrong again the last time that I saw my OB, she said do not get pregnant in Texas right now. She said this is not safe. Now Kaylee and Kate have to decide. Abide by that advice and leave Texas, leave their families and their jobs, or stay in Texas and risk Kaylee's life once again. We reached out to 10 state legislators in Texas who authored or sponsored the state's anti-abortion laws. We did not get one response. Not one legislator wrote us back with their thoughts on Kaylee's situation. Not one legislator took responsibility for the very laws that they wrote.
0: Jake? Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, a murder scene in Vegas. An investigative journalist killed. Are there clues to his death in some of the stories that he wrote Stay with us. Stabbed to death. Jeff German, a veteran investigative reporter for the Las Vegas Review-Journal, was found dead, murdered over the weekend near his home. And now police are searching for his killer. Authorities today served search warrants in connection to German's death. Let's bring in CNN's Nick Watt. Nick, have police narrowed down a suspect?
10: Well, not yet, but here is what we know, Jake. Las Vegas police tell us that they are serving search warrants today in connection with the murder of that veteran investigative newspaper reporter, Jeff German. He was found dead outside his home in Vegas Saturday morning. Cause of death? Homicide. Multiple sharp force injuries. That's according to the local medical examiner. Now, uniformed police were seen this morning by Las Vegas media outside the home of a local government official, the Clark County Public Administrator, a man named Robert Tellis. But Las Vegas police would not tell us what transpired there, or if that police activity is in any way related to the Jeff German homicide investigation. We have reached out to Robert Tellis' office for comment, and we're still waiting for a reply. Now, Back in May, Jeff German published a long piece about TELUS in the Las Vegas Review Journal. It began, quote, the Clark County Public Administrator's Office has been mired in turmoil and internal dissension with allegations of emotional stress, bullying and favoritism. Now, German went on to write that TELUS was, quote, carrying on an inappropriate relationship with a staffer. Tellus denied those allegations in June He lost the Democratic primary, so will not be seeking re-election this fall. And he slammed Jeff German in a series of tweets, calling him a, quote, typical bully and writing, looking forward to lying smear piece number four. Now, to be clear, we do not know if there's any connection here. Police aren't saying one way or another. Meanwhile, the paper is mourning a dedicated reporter. The Review Journal family is devastated to lose Jeff. The paper's executive editor, Glenn Cook, has said in a statement going on to say it's hard to imagine what Las Vegas would be like today without his many years of shining a bright light on dark places. Jake. All right, Nick Watt, thank you so much. Also in our national lead, the crisis
0: along the southwestern border. The U.S. Border Patrol has seen a record number of deaths for the 2021 to 2022 fiscal year that started last October 1st. 748 deaths and counting. This news comes as Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott continues to ship migrants to cities with Democratic mayors and continues to, therefore, add new Democratic critics to his ranks. For weeks now, on Abbott's orders, thousands of migrants who reach the U.S. border, many of them seeking asylum, have been put on buses and sent to places such as New York City or Washington, D.C., or More recently, Chicago. CNN's Omar Jimenez is there. We're also joined by CNN reporter Priscilla Alvarez, who covers border issues for us. Omar, first to you, the Democratic mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot. She's calling Governor Abbott a man without any morals.
7: Yeah, Jake, a man without any morals, shame or humanity to get her full statement in there, And uh, she's not one to spare the details on that. This goes back to about a week ago when dozens of migrants began arriving by bus here in Chicago and another 50 came on Sunday. So a little over 100 at this point. And Mayor Lightfoot says she's been in constant contact or regular communication with people on the ground in Texas, but that Governor Abbott hasn't been one to cooperate or coordinate and in doing so is helping manufacture a human crisis. Take a listen.
12: This is not a governor who wants to collaborate and and cooperate with us. There's a way to do it. It's real simple. Pick up the phone, send me an email, work through third parties. Um, I'd love to see that because that, to me, would show that he's, importantly, that he's regarding these folks as human beings who are deserving of respect and dignity and not treating them
16: just like freight to be shipped across the country.
7: And in the near future, Mayor Lightfoot says that Chicago is going to continue being a welcoming. City for these uh, migrants, offering food, shelter, medical care if necessary. But as you can imagine, Governor Abbott's office has not been happy with the statements coming out of Lightfoot's office. And I want to read a little bit of a statement that his press secretary put out saying, instead of lowly personal attacks on the governor and complaining about a few dozen migrants being bussed into her sanctuary city, Mayor Lightfoot should call on President Biden to take immediate action to secure the border, something the president continues failing to do. Again, in his words. Now, Customs and Border Protection has seen record numbers of migrants along the southern border. And it's also important to note that uh, you can a lot of these migrants can come to Chicago even if they're not bused. But of course, it is a dynamic that the city of Chicago continues to expect from the state of
0: Texas. Priscilla, let me bring you in because you have new numbers about the deaths along the southwest border.
19: That's right, Jake. This might be the deadliest year, the deadliest fiscal year. A homeland security official now tells me that so far this fiscal year, there have been 748 deaths along the southwest border. And that is still with a month to go in the fiscal year. Now, to compare last fiscal year, there was 557 deaths and 247 deaths in fiscal year 2020. Now, remember, migrants often pass through treacherous terrain, dangerous waters, and sometimes fall off the border barrier when crossing from Mexico to the United States. And that really came into focus last week when eight bodies were recovered from the Rio Grande in what was a mass drowning incident. Now, immigrant advocates say that it is U.S. border policies that sometimes lead migrants to take even riskier journeys But U.S. Customs and Border Protection, as you heard there from Omar, has been grappling with a record number of migrants. And they pointed me to smugglers as as some of those taking advantage of migrants, saying, quote, smuggling organizations are abandoning migrants in remote and dangerous areas, quote, leading to a rise in the number of rescues, but also tragically a rise in the number of deaths. So, Jake, this remains a grave concern as the months go on.
0: Priscilla and Omar, thanks to both of you. Coming up next, video you will only see here on CNN. Hear what poll workers were told in a training session as Republicans try to control future elections. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, California is baking under record-breaking temperatures well into triple digits. Plus, a hurricane is threatening to keep relief at bay. Then, fears of more flooding, with one-third of Pakistan already underwater. In some places, it's so bad, families have nowhere to bury their loved ones. And leading this hour with a CNN-exclusive video of MAGA loyalists training poll workers in Michigan, even suggesting that they break the rules. And as CNN senior investigative correspondent Drew Griffin reports, the trainers went so far as to call the poll workers, quote, secret agents.
4: Well, don't
0: be fearful, guys. CNN obtained this recording of a Wayne
4: County GOP training session over Zoom the night before the Michigan primary last month.
9: So you're all really undercover agents. Congratulations. This best undercover
18: training.
4: It is extra training, partisan training, not just for volunteers observing elections, but including the actual paid election workers who will check in voters, hand out ballots, even help in the counting, which is why what they are being told is alarming.
3: There's a lot of bad stuff that's happening in the upcoming election, so we're going to have to keep our heads on a swivel and just start documenting irregularities.
4: The poll workers are hired by towns and clerks, and Wayne County's Republican chairperson Cheryl Costantino tells them they may need to break the rules to uncover fraud.
19: They were told by their trainers that they could not have their phones with them. So I would say maybe just hide it, and maybe hide a small
9: pad and a small pen.
18: You need to take accurate
7: notes. If we are observed with a pen and a piece of paper writing on anything, they, they just said they would, they would ask us, the, they would remove us. That's why you got to do it
19: secretly.
4: This training for the primary was just practice for the upcoming midterms, according to Costantino. And it's not just what's being taught, it's who is doing the teaching.
3: We think a lot of the monkey business that's happening is happening at the vote aggregation location.
4: That is election denier Patrick Kolbeck who co-led this training session. He's a former state senator who wrote a book called The 2020 Coup and has a blog filled with debunked conspiracy theories about voting machines. He spread so much disinformation about the 2020 election, he got this cease and desist letter from Dominion, the voting machine company, saying, you are knowingly sowing discord in our democracy, all the while soliciting exorbitant amounts of money. All right, well, first of all... Uh, He's appeared on Steve Bannon's show, and with the My Pillow guy, Mike Lindell. We
3: did see evidence that it was connected to the Internet.
4: There is no evidence any voting machines were connected to the Internet in the 2020 election. But Colbeck is still asking Republican poll workers to check.
3: There's this little icon down the bottom, bottom right-hand corner. And what I'm trying to do is to see whether or not these machines are indeed connected to the Internet.
4: Colbeck According refused to, their- to speak to CNN. But the other leader of the training, Cheryl Costantino, did. You were training these people to be undercover spies. That was the words you were using, and I'm wondering (laughs) why.
18: Well, first of all, if you remember in the election two years ago, There were so many problems.
4: With election staffing, she said, with who counted ballots. But she's an election denier, too. She filed a baseless lawsuit in Detroit alleging election fraud in 2020. It was thrown out. Why did she tell election workers to act like spies?
18: To kind of reframe it and make it more fun and interesting. I said just, you know, instead of causing a bunch of scenes and things like that, just write it down, just can be like spies and let me... You know, let me know what's going on.
4: While Michigan's primary election went smoothly... I did nothing wrong. ...a poll challenger affiliated with Colbeck and his training was thrown out of Detroit's ballot counting center for repeatedly getting too close to workers.
0: I told them that they were breaking the law.
4: What's happening in Michigan is happening across the nation. Attempts are underway to make sure the ultra-MAGA run the election process from poll workers all the way up to candidates for secretary of state and attorney general. Trump attorney Cleta Mitchell has led seminars in eight swing states, all under the presumption Democrats cheat. CNN caught up with her in Wisconsin.
22: That we'll be able
20: to make sure that there's, um, there's another set of eyes going on, uh, watching the ballots, watching the voting, watching the process, knowing what's going on in the election offices.
7: These uh, training sessions are planned chaos. These people are being radicalized.
4: Jeff Chimmer used to lead the Michigan Republican Party.
7: They think they're saving democracy from the cannibal socialists, where in
0: fact what they're doing is eroding the public's faith in, in elections.
4: Jake, Michigan's Secretary of State says her state is ready for any issues that may arise from these partisan training sessions, and the clerks who run the elections can remove anyone violating the rules. But on a more positive note, and there is one here, those same clerks are telling me that most of the distrust of the electoral system is born of ignorance, as we've seen so many times. And when these suspicious workers actually get in there and get their feet wet and see how elections are run, according to the clerks, they generally become believers in the system. Let's hope so.
6: Let's hope
0: so. Drew Griffin, thanks so much. I want to bring in The Minnesota Secretary of State, Democrat Steve Simon, thanks so much uh, for joining us. What's your reaction to hearing these Republican individuals suggesting that poll workers break the rules uh, for presumably the upcoming midterm elections?
23: It is deeply, deeply disturbing. I think CNN's done a public service here just warning all of us uh, who do elections to be on the lookout for this. I have no problem with any political party or political movement organizing folks to show up to be election judges. In Minnesota, we need 30,000 people to step up and do that. But the rule is you got to leave your politics at the door. And in Minnesota and in most states, we make our election judges or poll workers literally swear an oath to be fair and impartial. If you can do that, doesn't matter what your politics are. If you can't, if you throw sand in the gears, if you interfere, if you interrupt, if you disturb, that's a problem and people can and should be removed.
0: And we should make it clear, there's a, there's a difference between partisan poll watchers, which Democrats and Republicans regularly engage in, and that helps build confidence in the process, and paid poll workers who are supposed to be nonpartisan while doing their jobs. So you're the top election official. In Minnesota, which is regularly a battleground state, what do you see as being the long-term effect of this type of training on the ability for states to conduct fair elections? Are you concerned that the public's faith in elections uh, is going to keep being eroded?
23: I am concerned that this is one example among many in the past, and unfortunately probably several in the future, where people are going to try to blur the line that you just mentioned. Poll challengers, as we call them in, in Minnesota, sometimes observers, hey, that's okay. In Minnesota, every party gets one, not 20, not two, one designated in writing to be eyes and ears of a political party. But that's a very different role than the person handing out ballots, greeting folks, making sure that they can get registered at the polls. And when you blur those lines and you tell people to go in and disrupt, and even in your clip to break the law, that is a bridge way too far. That is against the law in Minnesota. And I suspect in most states. But it's disturbing that people would try to blur that line and send people in knowing that they will be at least attempting to break the law.
0: You heard Drew Griffin report that uh, pro-Trump attorney Cleta Mitchell has led uh, some of these MAGA election trainings in eight different battleground states. For people who don't remember, Cleta Mitchell was one of the figures on the phone in January 2021 with your Republican counterpart in Georgia, Secretary of State Brad Raffensberger pushing Raffensperger to find, quote unquote, find enough votes for Trump to win the state, even if they didn't actually exist, those votes. So you're the vice chair of the Democratic Association of Secretaries of State. What are you specifically doing to protect the sanctity of the voting booth from from the kind of interference that we keep hearing about and saw in the last election ahead of the November midterms?
23: Well, in Minnesota, it's about putting people on notice about just the kind of tactics you're talking about. Again, I want to make clear any political party, political movement. Absolutely. Sign people up to be uh, election judges or poll workers. Just make sure that they uphold their oath and uphold the law. So one is just putting people on notice about that. The other, though, which you got to um, a couple minutes ago, is transparency and sunlight are our friend. Over time, I'm not saying in the next few weeks, but over time, we can have an impact by acquainting people, with the election system as it really is, whether it's Minnesota, Michigan, or any other state. Once people are exposed to that, either as election judges or in any other capacity, they invariably come away impressed and with a ton more confidence. They see how hard it is to uh, get away with uh, misconduct. They see all the checks and balances. They see the layers of accountability and the guarantees of trustworthiness. That's the kind of thing we gotta get out the word uh, for going forward. So this is a long-term project. I'm discouraged by, by your report and, and what it says about attempts, organized attempts, to uh, corrode well-earned trust in the system. But I'm confident that over time, we can make sure the fever breaks if we work at it.
0: Plus, of course, there are these conspiracy theories about voting machines and fraud that doesn't exist. You're up for re-election this year. Your Republican opponent. He's called the 2020 election rigged. He has likened uh, changing the rules around voting in 2020 to the September 11th terrorist attacks.
23: How do you respond to these kinds of allegations? Right. Well, they're foolish, they're irresponsible, and they're ultimately really dangerous. Um, We can have all the policy differences we want. That's a good thing. We welcome that in elections in particular. But if we can't agree on the basic fundamental facts of what the system is, forget about what it ought to be, and we can have those debates, then we're in real trouble. And what we're seeing, not just from my opponent, but by others running in other states, and I'd say by... You know, uh, national political leaders that are fanning these flames, we're seeing an attempt to spread disinformation. You mentioned Cleta Mitchell. I'd call her a super spreader of disinformation along those lines. That's the dangerous part. People who are willingly and knowingly spreading false information about what the system is. That's the problem.
0: Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon, thanks so much for your time today. Coming up, even a pardon from Donald Trump cannot completely protect Steve Bannon from his latest legal troubles. Plus. With just about two months until the midterm elections, top Republicans are turning their fire upon one another. And it's all about the money. Stay with us. Continuing with our politics lead, new legal trouble for Trump ally and former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon. Bannon is expected to surrender to authorities in New York tomorrow morning to face state charges related to his fundraising effort to build a wall along the southern U.S. border. Not surprisingly, Bannon denies doing anything wrong. CNN's Kara is in New York. Uh, Bannon once faced federal charges related to the border wall scheme. President Trump ultimately pardoned him. Fill us in on what charges Bannon's facing now from the state of New York.
13: Well, Jake, the state charges are expected to be very similar and mirror the conduct that Bannon was charged by federal prosecutors. And as you remember, Bannon was arrested on the yacht of a Chinese billionaire in August 2020. Federal prosecutors charged him with defrauding donors in a crowd-fundraising effort to fund the construction of a wall along the southern U.S. border. Prosecutors say Bannon and his co-conspirators raised $25 million, but secretly diverted about a $1 million of that to cover their personal expenses. Now, former President Donald Trump pardoned Bannon on his final days in office, but a presidential pardon does not affect state charges— and because Bannon was charged, but his case never went to completion. he didn't plead guilty he didn't um, you know go to trial. Uh, that prosecutors and former prosecutors tell me that doesn't um, mean that he it it means he doesn't have this issue of double jeopardy like we saw with Paul Manafort. So after the presidential pardon, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office opened an investigation looking into this very same conduct. In June, CDN reported that some people in Bannon's inner circle went before the grand jury. And now Bannon is expected to be in court tomorrow here in New York to face these new state charges, Jake.
0: And what does Bannon have to say about all this?
13: Uh, well, Bannon is, um, he issued a statement last night calling these charges phony, saying they're nothing more than a partisan political weaponization of the criminal justice system. He says they're coming after all of us, not only President Trump and myself. I am never going to stop fighting. In fact, I've not yet begun to fight. They will have to kill me first. An attorney for Steve Bannon told me that he is expected to plead guilty tomorrow when he's in court and reigned on these new state charges. Jake.
0: A reasonable statement, as always, from Mr. Bannon. Teres thank you so much. With us now, conservative attorney George Conway. <laughs> You're going to have to kill me first. It's quite a statement. He's well, very dramatic. Uh, he he enjoys the drama. Yes, that is does. fair to say. What do you make uh, of the case itself uh, as a legal matter? As a
11: legal matter, it just a, it should be probably just a carbon copy of the federal case. I mean, the federal case alleged, in essence, that they were making ale- they were making. Representations to the public and people who were giving, they were soliciting money from, that 100% of the money would go to building a wall, which wasn't true. They were lining their own pockets. And the, and the federal indictment brought by the Trump Justice Department was very emphatic about that. And one of the things about committing fraud in the 21st century, a nationwide internet fraud in the 21st century, is you can be charged by the federal government for wire fraud in any federal district, and you can be charged for state fraud in any state. And so that's what's happened here. They just went down the street to the, to the you know, the, the, they're just going to, the, down the street at the Manhattan DA's, DA's office, and they took the same charges, and the same people who are being uh, alleged to have been defrauded are and by the same people, uh,
0: um, it's the same case. Because people, presumably people in New York, in New York paid yes. money. In and the, so, like so the federal, yes. The federal, so, anyone yeah. can, so anyone, any state could do that, as long as correct. somebody in that state gave money, right. they can do it. Um some of Bannon's uh, collaborators have, have pleaded guilty already in the federal case, which would seem to, uh, again, I'm no lawyer, I don't know, but that doesn't seem to bode well for Mr. Bannon.
11: No, it doesn't. And, and I suspect that the state prosecutors have been in touch with the federal prosecutors and, about getting um, these people who have pled guilty to testify in the state case um, because they could be, they could, that could be used to lighten their sentences in the federal court. So they have every incentive to, to testify as to what they did. They've already been convicted, and they actually could get some leniency. I don't know that for a fact, but it would make, make a lot of sense. So he's, he's in a lot of trouble.
0: Um, I, I do want to get your reaction to the piece that Drew Griffin did in the previous block about the poll workers being trained by MAGA folk uh, like Cleta Mitchell and others, uh, in which uh, we, we have some uh, suggestion people are told to you know, bring in devices that they're not allowed to bring in, break the rules, uh, what do you think of all that? It's um, profoundly disturbing. I mean, it's it's as though the, the MAGA
11: Republicans are, have taken to heart what Trump has been saying um, that has been apocryphally uh, attributed to Stalin, that what matters is who counts the votes and not who votes. And that's, it's just incredibly disturbing. Not only are they setting themselves up to setting up um, the possibility of malfeasance by people manipulating the vote, but also the ability to make uh, false, more false accusations about the election process by putting these people there. And if they are thrown out for violating the rules um, by using their cell phones or their pens and paper, um, they're going to get thrown out and they're going to pretend that they're the victims and they're going to make false accusations that they were thrown out as part of a conspiracy. Yeah, It's just very disturbing and undermines, you know, greatly undermines the, the, the process and, and the public's confidence in it.
0: Mark Meadows' legal team is in court today challenging the House Select Committee investigating January 6th, challenging their subpoena. Uh, the first hearing held in the case, uh, and the judge promised a quick decision, but midterm elections coming up really just in a matter of days. Presumably, uh, House Republicans, who only need to flip like five or six seats, will recapture uh, the House of Representatives and kill the January 6th committee. As- essentially, has Meadows and other Trump allies, have they—, have they run out the clock on on cooperating with the January 6th investigation?
11: It's quite possible that they have, because one way or the other, we think that, I mean, I think it's reported that the January 6th committee is going to finish up by the end of the year, no matter what. Maybe if if the Democrats hold the House, maybe they'll continue. But uh, fundamentally, they have run out the clock. But The the fact of the matter is he's produced all these emails and we've got all this other testimony about what happened at the White House. Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, 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 Pat Cipollone, and all these people have testified about what happened at the White House. And we have a very, very good picture, thanks to the January 6th committee, about what happened that day.
0: Um, One of the groups, uh, many of whose members have been uh, indicted for seditious conspiracy that day, are the Oath Keepers, uh, a far-right paramilitary group. Uh, The Anti-Defamation League has published an analysis of the 38,000 names uh, on the membership list for the Oath Keepers. Uh, The ADL reports, quote, a review of these membership lists revealed that while there are many members of law enforcement, military, and first responders in the membership roles, there are also elected officials, government employees, teachers, religious figures, and businessmen, among others. Um, I mean, I'm sure that there are plenty of people out there who would say, yes, this extremism has been mainstream for a long time. We're just now waking up to it. What do you think?
11: Uh, it, it is a problem. I mean, the fact of the matter is it's it's not just I mean, it, it's hitting mainstream, main, main street America that, that this kind of extremism people are trying to, to they make false election charges. They make they make um, uh, they're, they're threatening violence. And it's just very disturbing, particularly the number of I think there were 300 uh, law enforcement officers that were, who were on the list, and that's very disturbing. I mean, it raises questions that are that continue to be raised, as as we saw with the George Floyd um, uh, situation, where you know, do we are we properly screening law enforcement officers? But again, it's the fact is that we're seeing people from all walks of life show should they show it up on january 6th and they're showing up on these lists it's just very disturbing
0: all right george conway thank you so much always good to see you appreciate it coming up next pakistan's deadly flood catastrophe the desperate lengths survivors are going to find dry land just to bury their loved ones stay with us In our Earth Matters series, Pakistan is suffering from floods driven by the climate crisis. Since June, the floodwaters have taken the lives of more than 1,300 people, including 466 children. And now the country's largest lake is overflowing once again. Nearby villagers say they're terrified they're going to drown. CNN's Anna Korn reports now on the families unable to find enough dry land to bury the dead. A warning for you, uh, some viewers might find this report disturbing.
24: A metal box is pulled through the floodwaters. What's in the box, asks the bystander. A dead body, replies a man. They open the lid and show the body of a man crammed in. The family doesn't have money for a funeral, he explains. There is no place to bury the dead. That is how bad the situation is. They continue to haul the makeshift coffin through the brown murky water, searching for higher ground to bury the corpse. In another district, a group of villagers drag a makeshift raft with another man's body through the floodwaters. We came across an official with a tractor, says a man looking distressed. We requested help to transport the body, but he denied there is no ambulance, no support by anyone. As Pakistan's catastrophic floods continue to inundate one-third of the country, the province of Sindh in the country's southeast is now bearing much of the brunt of this climate change-induced disaster. With the water unable to drain away, there is nowhere to give the dead a dignified burial. Instead, these villagers hold a funeral procession for their relative in the very waters that claimed his life. Pakistan's unprecedented monsoonal rains that have been falling since June have affected at least 33 million people across the country. That's 15% of the population. Millions have been displaced, having lost their homes and crops in the floodwaters. And the government and aid agencies are struggling to provide enough food, medical care and shelter to those who've lost everything. The ferocity of the flash floods has been the biggest killer. More than 1,300 people have died, one third of them children. Including a three-day-old baby girl whose family tried to escape their home as the water almost reached the ceiling.
4: The wife had the baby in her hands. just at the end, she couldn't hold it because the water was too strong. And uh, and the baby swept away. Uh, they, they found the baby, but uh, unfortunately, baby died.
24: For the people living near Lake Mancha, Pakistan's largest freshwater lake, a looming disaster supposedly adverted, has come at a very high price. Officials were forced to breach it to reduce dangerously high water levels. But tens of thousands of villages downstream have now been left homeless, and further flooding is still expected. It destroyed our crops and houses. No one informed us it was happening. No one warned us, explained this farmer, tending to his cattle, barely keeping their heads above water. The village is submerged. There is no way to get to our village, says this man. Some families are now stranded. We appeal to the government to send rescue teams and help these people. A plea to an already overstretched government grappling to deal with this unprecedented calamity. Anna Corrin, CNN, Hong Kong.
0: Thanks to Anna Corrin for that report. Could a money fight cost the Republicans the Senate in November, the latest chapter of party infighting as the midterm elections tick closer and closer? Stay with us. Senate Republicans are cash strapped, they say, and anxious about the midterm elections. Multiple sources tell CNN that GOP senators are alarmed at at profligate spending by the National Republican Senatorial Committee, the Senate's foremost campaign fundraising arm, made more rocky by the head of the PAC, Florida Senator Rick Scott, and his ongoing feud with Republican Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. And just look at these key races, Democrats are, as of now, raising hand over fist compared to Republicans in these key states, Ohio and Arizona and Georgia. Let's bring in our panel. Ryan, let me start with you. McConnell taking matters into his own hands in a way. He, he's calling donors beyond his usual list, we're told, asking for money for his personal high spending PAC. So it has enough to shell out for high dollar campaign ads and battle run states. Can McConnell fix the problem in time, do you think? McConnell's in a really interesting spot right now. And in some ways,
3: he's played a, a role in this. He's been famously anti-agenda. He's, he never wants his candidates to run on an agenda. And when you live at a time when kind of grievance populism in the Trump style becomes uh, something that energizes voters, you sort of need a bar for candidates. And uh, an agenda is one really good way to do that, for people to have to debate, to have to, to describe, to have to defend what they, what they believe. And that's worked for he's pointed to elections in the past where that's worked before, Um, but it's not working right now. And so we've seen, you know, some subpar candidates, as he indicated, maybe a few nutters as well uh, that they've had to deal with. Maybe. And uh, maybe. (laughs) Uh, So I've heard. And um, and at the same time, you know, Biden's agenda has is often not as popular as gets reported. I mean, when Mm -hmm. you just look at polling results, there's a lot for Republicans to actually work with there to counter. And to put forward new ideas. And they've chosen this other way. And I think they're, I think that's part of the reason they're paying a price for this, right?
0: It's now. interesting. Chris, uh, Pennsylvania Republican Senate candidate Dr. Oz, he deflected yeah. when asked uh, if McConnell should be the majority leader. Uh, other pro-Trump uh, Senate nominees uh, from the Republican Party have, have called for McConnell to be uh, ousted. Um, do you think this is all bark and no bite if, if Republicans, uh, w- whether or not they take control of the Senate, I guess?
2: Yeah, I... I think I
0: do. Um,
2: I, these sorts of pledges, like Blake Masters in Arizona said that Mitch McConnell was bad at legislating. J.D. Vance said he was sort of lukewarm on McConnell. Um, the, the the nominee in other states have said similar things. I think when the rubber meets road, oftentimes these pledges go out the window. And I think part of the reason is because it's not Mitch McConnell versus your ideal guy who is, or gal who is the other alternative. It's Mitch McConnell versus probably no one. I know we talk about- Not even Rick Scott? Well, I was going to say, we talk about Rick Scott, the Florida senator. I know Donald Trump has encouraged him to do so. I think Rick Scott has his eye on Donald Trump's old job, not necessarily wanting to be the Senate minority, definitely not wanting to be the Senate minority leader, probably not wanting to be the Senate majority leader. Um, And I think, honestly, Jake, even if Rick Scott did run against Mitch McConnell- I've I've been covering this stuff long enough to stop betting against Mitch McConnell when it comes to fights within the Republican conference. He knows his conference well. I'd be skeptical if you saw a Senator J.D. Vance or a Senator Blake Masters if they get there voting against McConnell. And, they're already starting to walk back some of those pledges. And Eva? McConnell
12: knows the game, right? He knows that these candidates have to do what they need to do to win. So no hard feelings there. He's not mad if they're sort of distancing themselves from him. That's right. And, you know, when it comes to, you know, November, though, he'll, they'll, they will likely probably support him. But, you know, the calculus right now is that if you are trying to turn up the Republican vote, um, being allied with McConnell is not helpful.
0: Um, Let's turn to my favorite Senate race, which is the one in my home Commonwealth, uh, between Dr. Oz and uh, Lieutenant Governor Fetterman. I know you've covered it. Today we saw um, Oz appearing alongside his former Republican primary rival, Dave McCormick. Uh, And then, uh, Kirsten, um, the Fetterman campaign tells Politico that he will do a debate with Dr. Oz. There's been some questions about whether or not he would do that because he's still recovering uh, from that stroke. Um, the campaign is uh, discussing accommodations for his hearing issues because of the stroke. Uh, what do you make of it?
20: Well, I think it's good that they've said that and I, because it is a fair attack, I think, to be coming from Dr. Oz and, um, he and Pat Toomey also came out and, uh, and said, basically, you know, are you not coming to debate because of your stroke? And are, are there some issues that you have? Uh, you know, some people say this is dirty politics, but I, I have to say, I think it's it's a valid question. Their answer is no, that has nothing to do with it. They've committed to doing some sort of debate um, in October, they've said. Um, so I think that it's important for Fetterman to do this.
0: And what, what do you think? Because you've seen him, you've seen Fetterman up close and personal campaigning, and he's still recovering. And look, right. people do recover from these strokes. Mm-hmm. He's relatively young, but it, it was, it's tough for him to get out sentences sometimes.
12: It is. And, you know, it is important for every candidate to debate, right? It, I think the voters are owed that much. And if you're running for the awesome job of becoming yeah. a United States Senator, you should be able to debate. The thing I think, though, in this race is that Oz is saying that he is going to use the debate to show Pennsylvanians who the real John Fetterman is. And I just think that is an overstatement and sort of a gross miscalculation. Pennsylvanians already know who John Fetterman is. This idea that a debate is going to reveal that he's too mm. radical for the state. He's traveled the state in his capacity as lieutenant governor uh, running on legalizing marijuana. When you speak to people at his rallies, they've known him from his time as mayor of Braddock. I'm just not sure this debate is going to be all that revelatory if and when it does happen. I
2: sort of agree. And I think you have to be careful with your eyes to freight the debate with so much meaning that, well, if, if everything doesn't turn on this one debate, then it's over for him. I think Fetterman would probably go into that debate with a lead. I think he has a lead now. The only thing I'll say, I want to back up Kirsten's point, two and a half months Fetterman didn't campaign.
24: Yeah. I mean,
2: it's not an insignificant amount of time. Basically, from the time of the primary, mid-May until August, mid-August, he wasn't on the campaign trail at all. It's not an—I uh, don't think it's outside the bounds of campaign politics to say— this is a guy who should debate. This is a legitimate legitimate question. If he gets out there and he does perfectly fine, then we say, okay, you know, he, he passed that test. But, but it is a test he should pass, given that there are are only a hundred senators. Every state only gets two.
20: Yeah, but to your point about you know be careful what you wish for because yes. this person who hasn't been campaigning for the last couple of months um, is also is le- is actually leading yes. in the race. Yes. So it's,
0: it's, it's narrow. Yeah, it but higher. still the
20: fact that you have a person who had a stroke and who is is actually yep. you know leading however by a, by however small a margin shows that Dr. Oz is not particularly popular, because this would be something that, you know, would, would typically cause concern to report, for, you know, to voters. How,
0: well, I know you're not a Democrat, but, but how would you advise? It seems to me there's an obvious way to do it, which is address it up front. I had a stroke, like you I have a lot of health issues. Uh, this is not going to go as clearly, you know, this probably won't go as well as it will in six months or a year. Uh, but here I am. Something like that, right? Absolutely. Take- I mean, the, the people, people
3: want to be sympathetic. Uh, they can be brought into a sympathetic place. And He's doing really well with Democrats. Um, Oz is doing better than you would think with with independents. Oz right. is struggling with Republicans. That's that's his problem. His 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 Republican coalition is hasn't really come together, and so that's that's his biggest problem. And Why so, do you think that is? Um, maybe because of all the criticisms that have been leveled against him, kind of questioning just where he's coming from. You know, to the to the earlier point too. I mean, he's he's been talking about a whole bunch of, of different things. I think he's he's just he's never. Um, been able to really build that coalition very well, give a persuasive message. He's he's been the carpet baker, all those sorts of things. I, I think I think Fetterman will generate a lot of sympathy by just being honest about who he is, and probably grow his support among the independents that he needs to grow it with.
12: Yeah, I, I, again, I think people from the sense that I get out there when I speak to people is that there are some people that don't even agree with him on policy that are going to vote for Fetterman because they like him. Mm-hmm. They're familiar with him from his days in Braddock. Uh, one man told me that. Uh, he, it was the dead of winter and he was knocking on doors late at night to make sure people had heat. Right. And he's more, it struck me as a conservative, but he still said that he supported Fetterman. So that is just the, that is a huge hurdle for Oz, who no shade, but up until recently was in New Jersey to overcome. I,
0: I do want to say though, Chris, I mean, like there's still, I mean, I wouldn't call it a red wave coming, but it's still, like, generally speaking, probably going to be a Republican-leaning year. I I wonder if we're we're not taking enough of that into account.
2: So I think that you have to give history its due, right? In virtually every election but two, the one after Bill Clinton's uh, impeachment and the one after September 11th, right? Two huge cataclysmic events in political history and history in general. The party out of the power in the presidency lost House seats, and in almost all cases, when the president was under fifty percent job approval, lost a lot of House seats. Uh, Senate is party a little bit in b- power, in in the power. White house. Lose, Lose, loses house, house seats. Seat. Yeah. Senate is a little bit more malleable, but yes, history suggests that Republicans will win House seats, likely in double digits. Senate, again, a little more up in the air because those races are harder to define. They, you know, there's more money spent on them. The candidates are better known the thing i always remind people of you don't need a wave for republicans to win back the house they're only down four seats yeah, exactly. so the, the senate it's 50 50 you don't need a wave there either if republicans net one seat they're in the majority so i think that people have to keep that in mind it doesn't have to be a wave election for republicans to regain them
0: right it just like a little baby wave
2: yeah a teeny little one
0: one hand clap all right thanks thanks one and <laughs> all for being here during the pandemic nearly one in four adults uh, received one kind of treatment that's next In our health lead, more American adults are seeking out mental health care in the wake of the pandemic. The CDC says that nearly one in four adults under the age of 45 received treatment for mental health in 2021. That's a jump of nearly five percentage points from 2019. Let's bring in CNN's brand new medical correspondent, Dr. Tara Narula. She's a cardiologist and a practicing physician in New York City. Welcome to CNN. We're lucky to have you. Um, Tell us more about the study.
21: So thank you, Jake. Um, This was a CDC study that looked at the percentage of American adults from 2019 to 2021, so those pandemic years, who received mental health treatment. And by treatment, we're talking about either prescription drug treatment or counseling and therapy. And they found some interesting trends. First of all, there was an increase across all adult populations in the numbers that received mental health treatment. But the most significant increase, as you mentioned, was in that 18 to 44-year-old population, where it went from about 18 and half percent in 2019 up to about 23% in 2021. There were some other interesting trends, Jake. They saw there was an increase across all parts of the country metropolitan areas rural areas there were some racial differences so non-hispanic whites being the most likely to receive mental health care treatment and finally gender differences so a big difference between men and women across every year they differed by about 10 percentage points with women really outpacing men and when you look at 2021 you'll see about 29 percent of women received mental health care treatment as opposed to about 18 percent of men so
0: what's your takeaway from this study
21: Well, first of all, I think it's reassuring that we're seeing more Americans seek care. Um, And I think the pandemic really opened the door to talking much more about mental health. But truly, I think we're just scratching the surface of the number of Americans that are getting treated who need treatment. The pandemic challenged us in every way economically, our social, emotional life, our health. and, And we're just, I think, at the beginning of what we're going to see long lasting effects from the pandemic. So, you know, I think it's important to really can reshape how we look at mental health. Mental health needs to be taken as seriously as we take our physical health. So just because you can't see the scars, the wounds, the trauma, doesn't mean they're not as profound and as important to attack aggressively, just like you would with a cancer or heart disease. Number two, we need to really look at this with a preventive lens. So just like we screen for physical ailments, like with our colonoscopies and mammograms, we gotta start thinking about mental health that way. So doing mental health checkups and catching people early before they reach the state of crisis. And then finally, we need to understand that mental health impacts our physical health. In my cardiology practice, many of my visits are spent really talking to my patients about their mental well-being and explaining that that will impact their risk of heart cardiovascular disease. Um, So a lot to do here uh, in terms of reframing how we look at mental health.
0: And I assume that one of the reasons uh, that it's believed uh, that that it's gone up the number in terms of people seeking mental health uh, treatment is because access has has improved so much because so many uh, more physicians and, and psychiatrists are willing to do telehealth on the computer.
21: Absolutely. And I think that's the one kind of silver lining of the pandemic is the real birth of telehealth. And we are seeing many people get access through telehealth and also digital and online platforms. Um, And then I think, as I said, it's really opened the door to the conversation and taking away the stigma and the shame. And that's so, so important to do.
0: Dr. Tara Narula, thank you so much. Good to have you again. Congratulations. Uh, And if you are looking for help, if you would like to help someone talk with a crisis counselor, Don't forget, you can always contact the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. You can call or text 988 uh, to uh, 988 or or do the chat at the 988lifeline.org. Up next, we share what may be the best video of the day. Plus, parts of California are the hottest they've ever been, and now a hurricane could make it harder to cool down. Stay with us. International lead, bracing for blackouts. A record-breaking heat wave is baking much of the western United States, fueling destructive wildfires and threatening rolling power shutoffs in California, 10 places in that state, setting all-time high-temperature records Tuesday, shattering previous daily records by more than 10 degrees in some cases. CNN's Natasha Chen joins us now live from just outside Los Angeles. Natasha, how are Californians dealing with the threat to the state's power supply?
22: Well, Jake, they've been pretty cooperative. We're now talking about the eighth day in a row that California residents have been asked to conserve energy between 4 and 9 p.m., uh, pre cooling their homes in the daytime and then turning that thermostat to 78 degrees during those peak hours when demand is high and there's less solar energy to use. And that seemed to work actually on Tuesday, as you were mentioning. Uh, this was the highest peak demand recorded in state history and everyone got these text alerts that we can show you on screen uh, saying that you know we're at this level just below having to potentially use these rolling blackouts and people really responded to that the demand dropped off after those alerts went out now we toured this uh burbank uh, power plant behind us just to get a sense of what they've been dealing with this uh unit behind us has been running 24 7. there's one that's typically only used when needed, but now is running 16 hours a day. And because of the cumulative effects of this heat wave and not having much cooling overnight, their equipment also has less chance to cool off overnight, Jake.
0: And then, Natasha, the fast-moving Fairview fire in Southern California, it's already killed two people as it burns in in all directions. Um, Tell us uh, how officials feel about that, how concerned they are.
22: Yeah, Jake, it's only about 5% contained right now. Those two people who were killed were trying to flee the flames. uh, And we are seeing that the flames are approaching federal land as well. So now they're working with federal partners to try and attack this fire. Uh, A PIO did say during a press conference to warn people who are watching the flames that this is moving so fast that people are not really able to escape the speed of the flames. So, that, so to to not just stand there and watch that happen. Uh, the schools there are closed, and uh, those warnings and evacuations continue to expand, Jake.
0: All right, Natasha Chen in Burbank, California, for us. Thanks so much. And our sports lead one for the history books not long ago at the U.S. Open. Francis TFO on a roll, defeating Russia's Andrei Rublev. He's now the first black American man to reach the semifinals since Arthur Ashe in 1972. TFO's victory today came in the same Arthur Ashe Stadium named after the tennis trailblazer. TFO is 24 years old. He's the son of immigrants from Sierra Leone. TFO will find out later tonight whom he will face on Friday, but we're all rooting for him here at the lead. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show with The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call The Situation.
16: Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like.